coming out today does not mean that they will give up uh, in the coming days to join our rally. You're listening to the news on RTHK. for the last three to five years. Foreign financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks climbed on Greece optimism and before the release of jobs data, Alexis Tsipras and the European creditors sparred heading into Sunday's referendum. And a poll in Greece suggests that voters are inclined to accept deeper cuts. Chinese stock futures rebound as regulators relaxed margin trading rules and cut equity transaction fees in their latest move to stem losses. Well, we'll look at the market and interest rates this morning with SockGen's Francis Chung, while IHS's Rajiv Biswas, who's in Vienna right now, will tell us how a potential Grexit or default could impact Asia. And our last guest this morning is Bloomberg Intelligence's Tim Craighead, and he will tell us more about the Shanghai Hong Kong Connect. Peter Lewis is our Thursday guest host, as usual. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Renita. So, Peter, should we care any more about this situation in Greece, considering it has probably been factored into markets, which is what all the analysts are saying, and markets don't seem too concerned. Well, so far, the markets have actually behaved reasonably well. The euro in particular hasn't collapsed. It's fallen a little bit, but um, it, it, it still remains around the 110 level. Sunday, the referendum is not going to make any difference, regardless of whether Greek people vote yes or vote no. Greece is going to be in exactly the same situation after Sunday as it is right now, in that it needs ECB support for its banks to stay solvent and to be able to survive. So the key decision that will come up is, after Sunday, will the ECB keep on providing that liquidity to the Greek banks? Greece needs a deal. The Eurozone needs a deal. So there's still a reasonable chance, despite the fact that things have become very bitter and uh, you know people are criticising each other very publicly, there is still a chance that some sort of deal will be cobbled together, a new bailout deal. But in my view, it will have to involve some sort of debt reduction because the current level of debt is unsustainable. Unless both sides are prepared to go down that path, um, then all bets are off. So, Peter, this is no different to what anything that anyone has been saying for so long now. If, uh, you know, having the referendum or not is not going to make any difference, what is the point of it? Well, there is no point. I mean, first of all, the the deal that um, the Greeks are voting on on Sunday is no longer on the table. They're not even voting on a valid deal. Secondly, I don't even think, with all due respect to the Greek people, I don't think they even understand what they're voting on. They are voting on a quite a technical deal. You know, papers from the IMF have been submitted as part of this vote. No one is going to read them and understand what it is that's in that package. So in many ways, it is a pointless referendum. It isn't a referendum on 
leaving the eurozone because even if um, even if Greece votes no to this austerity deal, they still don't necessarily have to leave the eurozone. The key key thing is the ECB and whether they continue supporting the Greek banks. So Alexis Tsipras, uh, who is the Greek Prime Minister, has called on Greeks to reject austerity measures in Sunday's referendum. He spoke in an address on national TV. Greek women and men, we are at a critical point in our country's future. Sunday's referendum is not about whether the country will remain in the Eurozone or not. That is a given, and no one can doubt that. I know well that at this hour the warning sirens are loud. They are blackmailing you and calling on you to vote yes to all the measures the creditors are asking for without any prospect of coming out of this crisis. On the other hand, a no vote is not just a slogan. No is a decisive step towards a better agreement that we aim to sign immediately after Sunday's result. It consists of the people's clear mandate on how they want to live the next day. No doesn't mean clashing with Europe, but returning to a Europe of values. No means strong pressure for a financially viable agreement that will solve the debt, will not eject it, will not undermine our agreement to restore the Greek economy and society. No means strong pressure for a socially fair agreement that will equally divide the burden to the ones that have the means, not to the people depending on salaries and pensions. But Eurogroup President Heron Jesselblom says that there are no grounds for talks ahead of the Greek vote. Given the political situation, the rejection of the previous proposals, the uh, referendum which will take place on Sunday and the no uh, advice of the Greek government, we see no ground for further talks at this point. There will be no further talks the coming days nor at Eurogroup level nor between uh, the Greek uh, authorities and the institutions uh, on proposals or financial arrangements. We will simply await now the outcome of the referendum on Sunday. Well, uh, markets uh, in the U.S. were primarily driven by Greece's woes, I should say lack thereof, stronger than expected Stronger than expected jobs and U.S. construction data gave Wall Street some support, as did Swiss insurance giant Ace Limited's $28 billion offer for upmarket property insurer Chubb, whose shares jumped by more than a quarter. The Dow rose 138 points to 17,757. The S&P 500 also gained about three quarters of a percent to 2,077, while the Nasdaq added half a percent to 5,013. All right, let's bring in our first guest for this morning, Rajiv Biswas, who is the chief economist at IHS Global. Good morning, Rajiv. Good morning. So, Rajiv, uh, according to the IHS Global Link model of the world economy, a Grexit with significant contagion effects could hurt Asia, lowering the APAC GDP growth by 0.3% in 2016. Can you tell us why? Basically, um, the scenarios that we have are two. One is that Greece defaults and um, basically leaves the Eurozone with very limited contagion effects to the rest of Europe. And the other scenario is that it leaves the Eurozone and has much more significant 
uh, transmission effects. And the key to what will be the impact is the strength of the firewalls that have been built up by the EU in the last three years. Um, they've had three years to really create some distance and buffering between the rest of the Eurozone and Greece. And these are things like the banks in the rest of the Eurozone have reduced their exposures. They don't hold uh, Greek assets. They've reduced their lines of credit with Greece. So the shocks that are happening into the Greek economy don't flow through to the rest of Europe. But we cannot guarantee that there will be no contagion effects because if Greece actually leaves the Eurozone and adopts its own currency again, which would, I think, be quite a devastating scenario for Greece itself, there could be some flow-on effects to other weak Europe, Eurozone countries such as Portugal, Spain, Italy, because investors may fear that eventually they also end up going down the same road and having to leave the Eurozone. If we end up in that contagion scenario, that's when uh, markets become uncertain. There's pressure on the Euro, Euro to fall further against the US dollar. And then the markets have uh, considerable more uncertainty about the outlook, driving um, asset prices lower. And that's how it affects Asia, because in that situation, of a weaker euro, there's competitiveness pressures uh, uh, against Asian currencies. Asian currencies also would be affected. Asian asset prices would be affected. And our estimate using our global model is that that would reduce growth in 2016 in the whole of Asia Pacific by about 0.3 of a percentage point. At the moment, Asia is growing in the order of 4.8%. Next year, we're expecting Asia to grow about 5%, so that would bring growth down a fraction to 4.7% or so. Which, so it's not a massive impact on the overall Asian story, but it is a bit of a drag on growth. Would we expect to see a significant impact on trade? I think there would particularly be an effect on, on tra trade with the Eurozone because of the weaker euro. So that could affect the competitiveness um, of the situation in Europe. And other factors, growth in Europe, in the Eurozone, would probably be weaker as well. So that, again, flows through to the exports from Asia to the Eurozone. Um, so those are how the transmission effects will work. It's through trade, through financial markets and capital flows and um, the exchange rate effects. So those are the main drivers of that scenario. So, Rajiv, you say 0.3% reduction in Asian growth, but are there some countries in particular in Asia that are more exposed and are likely to be affected more than others? I think the, the shocks are, are different country by country. Uh, to, to some extent, those with a lot of exports to um, the Eurozone could be more vulnerable, but another source of vulnerability is also the weaker currencies. And I think at the moment, the, the currencies that look particularly fragile in Asia, not only to the Eurozone problems, but also in general to other global shocks, are the Indonesian rupiah and the Malaysian ringgit, both of which have been depreciating for the last six months or so, in the case of the Indonesian rupiah, for somewhat longer than that, actually. And the fragility relates to domestic weaknesses in their current account balances. Um, Indonesia has been hurt already by lower coal prices, lower gas export prices, and that's made them more fragile um, in terms of their external account balance. 
And Indonesia has always been a country which has had relatively low foreign exchange reserves. Malaysia also has been hit by oil and gas prices falling. Um, so they've been having a somewhat harder run in the last six months. For a country that's normally pretty resilient with a relatively good um, balance of payments position, but in their case, they've seen quite a narrowing in their uh, current account surplus because of lower oil prices. But there's more resilient currencies as well. I think generally we've seen that China is pretty resilient to these kind of shocks. Um, they've got obviously 3.8 trillion US dollars in reserves. It's not a freely floating currency either. So and there's also capital control. So all of those things mean that we don't expect much impact in terms of the Chinese currency um, versus the US dollar. I think also we've seen resilience in some of the other um, Asian currencies. At the moment, the Philippine peso has been, I think, quite resilient because they have quite strong exports and are not likely to be much impacted by uh, this situation. In the All right. Time. Thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning, uh, Rajiv. That is Rajiv Biswas, and he is Chief Economist at IHS Global. Well, Peter, uh, you know, Yesterday, mainland shares fell sharply, and this is following Tuesday's rally, with the Shanghai Composite Index falling 5.23 percent to 4,053. The Shenzhen Component Index fell, uh, Composite Index fell 4.79 percent to close at 13,650, while the Qi Next Index, which is made up of growth companies, lost three and a half percent to end the day at 2,759. We've been seeing a continuous spate of volatility in Chinese stocks. How much is the cut in transaction fees, equity transaction fees, going to actually help? It'll make no difference whatsoever. I think the real problem is the amount of margin debt. And I saw a report from Goldman Sachs yesterday that estimates total margin debt is now 12% of the free float capitalization of the, of the margin eligible stocks. If that's the case, it's easily the highest ever in the history of global financial markets. And a small cut in the amount it costs you to buy or sell shares is not going to make any difference. The real problem is that there are a lot of retail investors who can't even get out of their shares at the moment. Some of the technology stocks have been closing limit down day after day, so they're trapped in them. They have to put up more margin. What they want to do is to be able to sell them and not have to put up the collateral. They don't care about a cut in securities transaction tax. That will make no difference at all. So will easing margin trading then be more significant? I, I think that that is the wrong thing to do. The problem, and we've seen this over the last couple of months, there's been a disconnect between the CSRC, the regulator, and the PBOC. The CSRC has been concerned about this. The PBOC, if anything, has been almost encouraging this bull run because it sees it as helping support the economy. I think that's a rather misguided view, but nevertheless, they have been promoting that. And it's the PBOC that seems to be more desperate at the moment to try and support this market and stop it falling. I think the margin transaction debt is by far the biggest problem um, mm. and I think it's very, very difficult to control a market when you get into this type of downward spiral. And I've seen this before. This is reminiscent of a market, this type of volatility, that's about to have a heart attack. I saw it in 1987 in the US, in Japan in 1990. We saw it in the bursting of the Nasdaq bubble, showing exactly the same signs. 
Now, there was an interesting rumor that came out about foreign puppet masters like Goldman Sachs being behind the tanking of Chinese stocks. And this is following a cartoon published by a state-owned digital media outlet called ThePaper.cn, in which an old Chinese lady is depicted as thanking the government for helping to rescue the markets, to your point, Peter, and blaming foreign ghosts for willing to, you know, willing it to crash. The Guilos. The cartoon immediately went viral on Weibo and WeChat with uh, Chinese netizens rallying behind it and venting against this so-called foreign interference for destabilizing the domestic market. And uh, interestingly enough, at, a, at the same time in another blog on another financial news site, Goldman Sachs was among uh, overseas investors blamed for shorting China's index futures. Finally, China's financial futures exchange waited until last afternoon, that's Wednesday, to deny rumors that foreign investors had in fact been doing this. Peter, what do you make of all this? (laughs) It's bizarre. I mean, the facts of the matter are there is only one equity index future that foreigners are allowed to buy. That's the CSI 300 contract that trades on the China Financial Futures Exchange. And even then, it's not available to retail investors. It's only available to institutional investors. They need to have a quota before they can do it. They can't buy it through the Hong Kong Shanghai Stock Connect. They can only do it under certain circumstances. In other words, if they want to hedge, they can't use it for speculative purposes. And foreign institutional investors, anyway, are underweight the China market. They need to be buying. And in fact, I think at some point, it may be the foreign institutions that will step in and start buying the markets because they are probably the only ones who are able to do so at this mm. moment. Well, speaking of the Shanghai Stock Connect, We'd like to welcome now our next guest, Tim Craighead, who is a Bloomberg intelligence analyst. Tim, good morning, Tim. Good morning. So, Tim, as of yesterday's close, the Hang Seng China AH Premium Index uh, slipped to 12,981. That's 23% down from its peak of 43% of 14,962 back in May. And, of course, this is due to one, you know, perhaps one of the biggest corrections ever in China. With this roller coaster ride of late, are we seeing signs, any signs at all, that this sentiment uh, is crossing over to Hong Kong? It's a great question, and I, we really don't think so. Uh, That's the quick answer. The longer answer is that these two markets continue to be very separate markets. Uh, As you all were highlighting earlier, the the mainland market continues to be driven by retail primarily. It's very momentum-driven. We can talk about that more in a little bit. But the Hong Kong market continues to be uh, a totally separate entity. It's fundamentally driven. It's institutionally driven. It's much more important to think about the fundamentals here and the growth dynamics and the political issues facing Hong Kong than it is China as it relates to shares, uh, share performance here. If you look specifically at the the Hang Seng China Enterprise Index, the HSCEI, <clears throat> that's a, an interesting gauge in terms of the the um, contagion effect, if you will, on the China market in Hong Kong. These are larger cap China companies that trade here. It's very visible. And, you know, that uh, that index uh, 
significantly underperformed mainland shares on the way up. Uh, it's much more akin to what you see with the Hang Seng index of you know just uh, here in Hong Kong, and on the way down, it's off a few percent, but not nearly to the significant uh, uh, state that the that the mainland shares have traded off. But isn't the whole point of the Connect program to actually create this interconnectivity in stocks? And would we not see a contagion if, if you know, for lack of better vocabulary, at some stage? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it, it's really interesting to think about this. Um, again, I'd say I, I don't think so at this point. Um, and it kind of goes back to this issue of, you know, Hong Kong is more fundamentally institutionally driven, where mainland is more retail driven. The Connect is there to to uh, to, to create an opportunity for mainland to invest abroad, for global to invest into China. Um, yes, it's via Hong Kong, but it doesn't necessarily impact Hong Kong per se from a fundamental perspective. Actually, I, I would hope and expect that a successful connect over a long period of time brings a more institutional bias and base to the mainland market, whether that's local institution, global institution, that takes it to a more fundamental base. You know, if over time we get more Chinese investing into Hong Kong shares, it's a marginal impact, um, and it certainly hasn't had been much yet. What do you expect to happen, Tim, to the volumes on the, the Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect if the market in China carries on plunging? Would you expect the volumes to, to drop as Chinese investors um, withdraw, or do you think maybe institutional investors will trade more? How, how do you see that going? Well, I mean, the, the, the outstanding balance as it currently stands on the Connect you know, isn't that significant anyway. Um, you know, at this point, even though the Connect works very well mechanically, uh, the aggregate balance uh, – uh, northbound and southbound isn't much more or less than 50% either way. So there's still a large quota that is that is outstanding. Um, and it is interesting, certainly looking at, uh, you used the phrase earlier, disconnect. Uh, it's interesting looking at the disconnect with the connect. Um, the, the A share premium, uh, on average, if you take the 80-odd stocks that trade uh, on both sides of the border is right now at about 105%. Um, it's still quite significant. The average price-to-earnings multiple or valuation measure, you know, in a very simplistic fashion, looking at forward earnings for the A-share stocks is about 41 times. That's on these dual-listed shares. It's 20.7 times in Hong Kong. So mm. this is the same company. They just trade on opposite sides. Do you want to buy it at 20 times here or do you want to buy it at 41 times there? Um, so it's, there, there's interesting you know, elements of this in terms of the connect being available and open. But the move in the China market from our perspective has been much more driven by monetary policy easing and a flow of funds domestically and excitement being generated by local retail investors. It has not been driven by a large influx of global money. You know, I would agree with you. That's an opportunity for a baton to be passed at some point in China to take it away from being flighty retail oriented to being more sustainably institutionally driven. All right, Tim, thank you so much for joining 
joining us this morning. That's Tim Greghead, and he is a Bloomberg intelligence analyst. Well, the People's Bank of China, the country's central bank, surprised markets with some aggressive monetary easing last weekend, cutting interest rates as well as the reserve ratio requirement. Uh, for select banks. The easing package, of course, came on the heels of the deep correction in the country's stock markets. China last cut both interest rates and the RRR at the same time in December 2008 at the peak of the global financial crisis. So should we be reading into anything here? Let's bring on our next guest, Francis Chung, who is the head of rate strategy for Asia X Japan at SOCGEN. Good morning, Francis. Morning. Francis, uh, what do you think about this? You know, the recent uh, interest rate cut and the reserve uh, requirement ratio reduction, of course, signals that the economy is facing headwinds. Should we be concerned that the last time this happened was in December 2008? Um, I think actually all for it uh, confirm our view that the PBOC is there to support liquidity if there is a need. So previously, um, there could be times that they did not roll over some lending facilities, but that could just primarily be there was no demand from the market. Uh, however, given the latest um, little bit aggressive uh, action, we see front-end renminbi rates uh, or liquidity still relatively tight. So I guess uh, this morning, investors would be watching out for if the PBOC will inject more through open market operations. In terms of the RRR, it is still structurally high. So whether it is structural or cyclical, uh, I think there is certainly uh, some more room for it to go lower. But uh, we are not expecting any uh, more aggressive policy uh, in Q3 because uh, the government or policymakers would likely to wait for some sign of rebound in the economy. So uh, despite these moves by the PBOC, the official PMI was flat at 50.2 versus uh, the estimate of 50.4. Now, uh, and you could also argue that there was a positive cannibalization by accelerating expansion for services, the services PMI being 53.8 versus the 53.2 estimate. So how do you reconcile the fact that uh, uh, the PMI numbers were okay, uh, yet uh, the PBOC still continues to be concerned? Okay, I think uh, there are two aspects in terms of uh, monetary easing. One is, of course, uh, to try to support growth, but the other is the liquidity. We mentioned uh, just now that uh, if liquidity remains fairly tight and if the money hasn't really been uh, deployed to the real economic activity, as you can see, lending rates in the market is still fairly high, despite that if you look at sovereign debt yields or the interest rate swap rates, they are lower. So I think another aspect is try to stimulate credit expansion in the economy. And even if PMI is doing okay, it is nothing uh, too uh, impressive. Uh, if you look at the number, it's only around 50. Francis, quickly before we wrap up, do you expect another hike in either interest rate or RRR? Um, I mean, cuts, right? Yes. Uh, we are not expecting uh, anything uh, on the headline in Q3. They may do some more thing in Q4. Rather, I think the uh, focus should be on if the PPOC would like to support lending through its various tools, be it like MLF, SLO, SLF, etc. So they have a lot of tools to deploy. All right, Francis, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Francis Chung. She is the head of rate strategy for Asia X Japan at SOCGEN. 
Let's take a quick look at the numbers before we wrap up the show. The Nikkei is up 1.2% to 20,574. Australia's ASX 200 index is up half a percent this morning to 5,536. And Seoul's Kospi up two-tenths of a percent to 2,102. In currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.10 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 123.35 yen. And one pound sterling buys you 1,200. Hong Kong dollars and nine cents. Well, Peter, here we are at the end of a show on this Thursday. We've got the Greece referendum coming up on the weekend. We still don't know what's going to happen uh, with Chinese stocks as the volatility continues. What else should we be keeping our uh, eyes on? There's jobs numbers coming out of the US. They're brought for a, a day earlier because the, uh, the the Independence Day holiday. Anything above 200,000 is normally looking pretty good. And it'll be nice to, to focus maybe once again on the US rather than Greece. And, and China. Yeah, we can talk about potential rate hikes then rather than cuts. All right, Peter, thank you so much for joining us this morning and every Thursday morning as guest host. That's Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting, who will be doing a special show called Biz Extra these next two months. Peter, you want to tell us about it real quick? Yeah, it starts at 8.30 on Monday morning when Backjet takes a, a well-earned break. I'll be talking to uh, some, some guests, also be talking about some of the business and finance stories that we don't get the time to cover on Money for Nothing and also playing a bit of music as well, starting 8.30am Monday morning. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Thanks, Peter. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hura, wrapping up for this morning's edition of Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly fine, apart from some isolated showers and very hot during the day. The temperature right now is 30 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 83%. Time for the half-hour news with Samantha Butler. Eurozone finance ministers have decided to break off talks with Greece over a possible new bailout until after a referendum on Sunday. The Greek finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, called the decision blackmail and said it was a very dark moment for Europe. But the European Central Bank will maintain emergency liquidity funding for